And welcome to episode six of the Data Driven Security Podcast. Jacobs. Joining me as usual is Bob Rudis. Bob, how you doing? Jay, I am in my secret underground lair, as you can tell from all the dark, moody stuff going on around me here. And I, I noticed you got the hat going on, too, and that's obviously for the glare, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, unlike you, I care about our viewers, which we'll probably have this time, and I'm trying not to blind them. Right. Well, I, I powdered a little bit. Just a can little. Can you tell? Just, just a little. Just a little. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, you, you have some news that I want to talk about, but first I think we should introduce our guest. Our hair-laden very... guest. Our, our hair-laden guest. Yes. Yeah. Hey. He's, uh, he has the gift of hair. We should, uh, we should acknowledge that. Um, so, Stephen Boyer, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, happy to be here, guys. I, I should have got a trim. Uh, so, so I, uh, maybe I should have worn a hat, but thank you very much, Ed. Well, my, my co-host neglected to inform you of the requirements to shave your head for the podcast, but we'll get that right next time. We'll let that slide. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to you in a second, but I want to get back to Bob here. And, and you can help me, Stephen, you know, interrogate him, because, Bob, you have a new job. Yes, I, I have relinquished uh, my benevolent overlord position at my former gig to uh, become an evil minion of Wade Baker and actually a co-worker of you, I believe, at Verizon. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and you don't have any minions. I am minionless, except for the, the kids. If you don't, if you don't count the kids, yes. Well, at work, right? Yeah, you don't. At have work, at work, I have no minions. No. Right. Yeah. Do you feel like a, a void, something missing? Um. Yes, paperwork, and and visits to the HR office. Yeah, that 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 void. I am totally glad not having to fill. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hey Bob, what are you I'll, most... I'll... sorry, go ahead, Stephen. What are you most excited about? I am most excited about a lot of the opportunities that we have to kind of. It feels like a startup environment. Actually, I think is probably the best way to. Do it. I could have drawn on, but that's kind of maybe the best way to phrase it. Uh, I, we don't have a complete name for the group yet, but it's going to have cyber and intelligence and labs and probably seven other words that are some, some innovation. Cool in it. Innovation, got to have that there. It's kind of a bunch of that stuff yeah. strung together into some meaningless, you know, kind of garbage that makes. It have to be disruptive, of course. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, the cyber, yeah. the disruptive cyber intelligence labs. <laughs> Innovate, no, the innovative disruptive. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, but it's very startup-y. Like, we're basically building a bunch of stuff from scratch and figuring out, like, what awesome stuff that we want to do. And there's some truly incredible people coming on the team in the very not-too-distant future uh, that are just going to be awesome to work with, as awesome to work with as Jay is and, and the rest of the team. And I think we're just going to do some pretty sweet stuff. So if it, I think all that stuff combined is what my big excitement's for. There's no specific one thing... Um, but it's going to be nice actually not being in meetings and actually getting to do real things for a change. Yep. Yeah. And you're, Bob, you're in your, like your second or third week now? I believe I am in my third week uh, at this moment in time, uh, heading actually down for a gigantic team meeting with you soon, I believe, and yep. uh, where we will be planning world domination and other things. 
And uh, I have to tell you, it's great. The team is just the and not just like my direct team under Wade, but the extended team uh, under Chris Porter and and the rest of the folks that I've been able to talk with there. I have not yet come into contact with anybody that I would not describe as just awesome. So it's been it's just wonderful working with such great people. Yeah. Wow, that's a glowing review. Yeah. No, it's it's I've been it's been thrilled interacting with everybody. Huh. Okay. Um. Well, great. And uh, I wish you good luck on your your new venture. Yeah, well, having to work with you every day, I totally appreciate that look thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to make sure that you have a good time. And, you know, if I can swing it too, if I have any influence, I'm going to try and make it so that you can bake bread during the day. I, I, have, I have managed to actually do at least a single loaf of bread during the day and work the smoker once during the day, which has been kind of nice. So. Right. All right, well, let's get to our guest. Let's... um. Let's dive into this, because we, I, Stephen, we've actually been trying to get you on for weeks, months. if not months. It has been. It's been hard to schedule. And uh, just crazy with, with Bob, you know, uh, changing roles and everything else, just uh, crazy time. So, but we got you on now. And so, uh, we haven't mentioned yet, but you're from uh, BitSight. You, you're working with BitSight. Um, so, could you give everyone sort of a background of who you are and what BitSight is and and why you're so incredibly cool and why we have you. <laughs> uh, thanks for a little bit of hyperbole there. Uh, now, so uh, a little background on me. So I've spent the last you know, 10 years uh, prior to you know, doing startups. I worked at the MIT Lincoln Laboratory, mostly focused on large-scale national security problems in the intelligence uh, security space. So I spent a lot of time working with uh, the U.S. government and our government partners across the globe on hard challenges in risk management, uh, where we mostly focused on measurement. It was one of those, uh, you know, one of my earliest bosses, you know, quoted Lord Kelvin, if you can't express something in numbers, you don't really know what you're talking about. Uh, and so that's always been, uh, you know, guiding principle in everything that we've done. And so several years ago, while we were doing a, a different startup, someone came to us and said, you know, one of the big challenges we have uh, in security measurement are these, you know, these SAS 70s, which are basically uh, attestations of, of auditors saying, hey, you have these controls or you don't have these controls. And one of the concerns was, well, ha simply having a control is not necessarily a state of security, right? It, it may be a good control, it may be a bad control. Uh, and so they wanted to get to some sort of assertion for how effective controls were as opposed to the existence of controls. And we thought, well, that's very interesting. And how might we go about that? At the same time, you know, there's one of the challenges where uh, organizations don't necessarily want to disclose. Right? We have a lot of lack of transparency uh, and sometimes they're embarrassed or just sometimes they may not be capable of disclosing because they just might have the information. And so uh, as the people we talked to really wanted to evolve the state of risk management, they saw a, a trend towards greater transparency and greater measurement. So at BitSight, you know, we uh, went to the National Science Foundation and said, hey, we have some ideas here. This is a big, uh, big challenge. Uh, you know, can we get some, some research grant funding to, to tackle this? So we're very fortunate uh, and appreciate the tax dollars. And I think, you know, obviously, I think it's a very wise use of tax dollars. Uh, but we, we received some, some grant funding to test some ideas out. And, uh, you know, one of those ideas was, well, what can we measure? And, you know, take, uh, you know, draw very uh, liberally from, from Dan Gear, a well-known security practitioner and just recently published with uh, Jay, which was an excellent paper. Recommend everyone go take a look at that. Uh, and when, one of the big challenges: Well, what do you measure, right? And you got to start measuring something. And so 
one of the one of the things that we said was well, let's measure what we can see on the internet. All right, let's what are what are measurable things that are transiting the internet that we don't have to worry about disclosure problems because it's already disclosed by transiting the internet that might tell us something about how an organization is putting in good controls that might tell us how effective those controls might be. Uh, and so we spent about six months, wrote a lot of Python, <laughs> and uh, you know, me and, uh, me and my co-founder, and we ran a bunch of experiments, and we had this one job, I'd say it ran for about two weeks, crunched on, and we looked at data on about 40 organizations. And when it popped out, it was amazing, it was a shock to us that we could actually learn things about some of these world's largest companies. Uh, and it was one of those you know, aha moments uh, and then the question always was, well, how good is that information? What does it really tell you? And so we had to cross-check that uh, with what some of our earliest customers in financial services saw when they actually did assessments, right? And so when they conducted these assessments, they did audit assessments, and they said, you know, that's really the only kind of basis for ground truth that we might have. Yeah. Uh, and so we cross-checked it. The amazing thing is that we had pretty good correlation which just doesn't necessarily mean we had you know, the, everything there, but what we were able to do is show them uh, negative outcomes on companies where they actually thought that they had good controls. And so that's where we thought we might have something is, you know, can we introduce greater transparency and more information about how, how organizations are behaving from a security standpoint by just measuring data? And so that's really the fundamental premise for everything that we do at BitSide is, can we get to some empirical measurement that's going to augment our transparency and visibility for better risk management? So that's kind of a long-winded answer to that first one. Uh, just give a little bit of history uh, and what we're really trying to do. So the, the overall goal, though, is to try and measure uh, security effectiveness uh, essentially by observing publicly accessible things about an organization. That's it. Uh, and that is, you know, the, ch the challenge is always disclosure. Right, and so uh, would an organization want to tell about you know issues that they had? And what we've seen historically is that security has been very inwardly facing, very insular. Uh, mm -hmm. And I know the the guys at Verizon, a little plug for you guys, have done a tremendous job, uh, create you know creating reports and data uh, that helps give greater transparency to the industry. Uh, but very rarely, and I don't think I've ever seen a case where you've talked about a specific company. Right, and I think there are reasons where they put non-disclosures in place. Uh, oftentimes, you just you need to get to a specific organization if you're going to manage some sort of risks with them. And so, for us, uh, we need to have authorization, obviously legal authority, to get everything that we collect. Uh, but we're trying to look at any observable that's going to have some bearing on how, and we call that effectiveness or hygiene, right? The hygiene of, of what they're doing on you know how an organization is behaving. Because a lot of the audits were focused on uh, controls existence. Do you have a process? Do you have a policy? And and the people we had talked to early on, or who were really kind of the thought leaders in this space, thought, you know, that that's all well and good, but the fact that they have a policy doesn't necessarily mean that they're executing on it. Right? right. The fact that they train their people doesn't necessarily mean that their people are performing well in terms of detection and response. Uh, right, and so we're trying to like, well, what are the things that we can actually collect that would give us indications as to how those things are doing? Yeah, that's interesting. So when you when you start to collect that, like you mentioned it briefly, you focus on public information, right? And largely, it's you know through an internet connection, 
Um, what are the what are the challenges that you found in, in approaching data collection that way? Yeah. So number one, you are abstracted from the inside, right? And so inside, anytime you're abstracted from the inside, which in some ways you would say ground truth, uh, there's going to be some amount of uncertainty. There's just no way around it. Right. Uh, and so you know we won't necessarily know when we see something coming out of a network. Uh, we don't necessarily know the root cause. I'd say that is one of the big challenges is, is getting to causality in some of these cases. Uh, and in many cases, we may never know. Right. Uh, so I'd say that that's one of the big challenges. The other one is there's so much noise out there uh, on the Internet. Uh, and I'll give you one example, hopefully, that makes this pretty clear. So there's something called uh, dark space in the Internet, which is typically address ranges uh, that are set aside, but no one's actually using them which means there are no machines behind those uh, addresses. And so you can imagine a, a big, you know, think about it in the physical space, an entire set of addresses that no one lives at. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there are big projects from CADA and other folks that do Internet Telescope, and they'll, they'll look at, well, what's going in and out of those darknet spaces? Because by definition, nothing should ever show up in there. Right. right? right. Uh, and so we all observe those type of behaviors. And if you just observe you know, one or two connections out of there, you really don't know a whole lot. Uh, it means somebody could have had an errant connection, mistyped a, an IP address, uh, somebody could have done what's called spoofing, and so, you know, they, they pretended to send from somebody in that address space, and then a response comes back and then ends up in there. A lot of distributed denial of service attacks, as people are pretending to come from different addresses across the world, will land in that darknet address space. So it's pretty noisy, but actually has a tremendous amount of signal if you can look at it for a long period of time. Right. Because you start looking at it for a long period of time, you can start to see, well, it's not just random. It looks like it's hitting a sequence of services, or it looks like it's hitting a range of, of ports or, or uh, machines. And instead of that just being random noise, now you're starting to see that may be kind of large-scale reconnaissance activity. Or that may be uh, propagation of malicious code, uh, as a lot of pieces of malware are now trying to connect out, right? And so part of it is getting through that noise, building models that would account for certain uh, you know, thresholds of, of behavior uh, to get to something that may be reflective in an outcome, where you know, it, you're talking about individual connections initially, and now once you start looking at it over days or months, now it starts to look like, yep, this there's clearly some coordinated scanning, you know, coming from this address block uh, that now we can attribute to a certain type of behavior. Hmm. Interesting. So um, you mentioned, though, that uncertainty, like, you know, when you see something, trying to attribute the, the meaning to that, right? But you can, you can get around that by getting more, right? Getting, you, you can improve or, or, I guess, reduce your uncertainty by gathering more and more observations around it, right? Yeah, and, and that's, that's great. So we do a lot in terms of cross-checking and cross-validation. So and, and a, a little bit of how we're collecting the data, we have uh, many of our own sensors, uh, but to kind of get to where we're going here is uh, nobody has a full sample, right? It's just there are, there are too many places to, to instrument or sit that everybody has a little bit different view. And to get to kind of the paper that you guys just published, Jay, you, know, you may all be looking for the same thing and get wildly different results. Yeah, and exactly. so our, our view is that we try to work with just about everybody we can who has a certain type of sample and then try to look across them. 
right? And so then we're cross-checking, uh, and you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll, we'll triangulate and we'll say, hey, we can say for certain that a particular activity happened. Uh, and so we'll say, yep, we know for sure that this machine uh, is compromised with a certain piece of malware. And that one we can get, we can drop our certainty down, uh, our bounds, and we can get really tight on that. The counter to that is we don't necessarily know why that particular piece of malware is on that network. And so that is the other challenge. So we hit this one. You guys will appreciate this story. So we're working with this company, and we just saw over a month period of time just a raft of malware coming out of it. And so we went to this company, and, and, we, and we're talking with them, and they're like, oh, you know what that was? That was, that was and I'll, I won't say his real name. It's like, that was Jimmy doing his malware research project. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? And so over a period of time, this guy inside the corporate networks just decided to install a ton of malware and just see what it did. Wow. Nobody else really knew what was going on. And sure enough, those machines were infected. Turns out it was intentional, uh, right? And uh, they were coming out of their networks. And so that's kind of get to the uncertainty. Is now we knew for sure it was malware. We actually confirmed that they tried to do it. But we didn't know that it was something malicious. It was actually intentionally put in there as part of a research project. That's pretty good. I mean, we have that same exact problem. I mean, you know, looking at this data, you're always at least one step removed from the source. You know, yes. I mean, you can't go in there and get a complete picture of anything ever. You know, yeah. you're always just that one step removed, and so that's that's always a huge challenge trying to get that full picture. Yeah, and and everyone's always gonna. Well, can we get more? You know, can you right. can you give me a little bit more uh, and to try to reduce that uncertainty? And the the answer is usually yes, but you're gonna get diminishing returns pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's always that cost benefit trade off. And you know, what else are are you gonna get? So we've done a lot of work in terms of our team and trying to figure out. Okay, when are we starting to hit some sort of asymptote, right? And and right. it could be uh, maybe we hit a false limit there and maybe we're kind of in a, in a trough before it kind of pops back up but we try to look at okay where do we start to see uh, limits in any one of these particular pieces of collection where are we starting to see you know from three or four different vantage points that we, we believe that we've hit you know some regional threshold uh, for that collection but I, I agree Jay there will always be a demand for better uh, right. more can you give me more certainty and that's you know one of the challenges that we face is you know what, what do we collect you know what is the proper uh, you know, sample size, you know, and when do you become certain enough? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, a huge, that's a huge challenge that we have with breach data because whenever somebody wants to consume breach data, we never have enough, right? We, they, everyone always wants more breach data, but then you turn around and you're like, hey, we would like you to start collecting breach data, and they're like, man, this is so much to collect, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah. so it's this, you know, sort of a catch-22, like nobody wants to gather all that data until they want to analyze it or learn from it. And then they're like, why aren't you collecting more? You know, yeah. and it's, it's difficult. Well, then there's all the overhead of managing that, right? Which oh, is, yeah. is, as the more you collect, then you got to manage it, you got to clean it, yeah. uh, right? And, and uh, some those are all the challenges, which is, yeah, more is not always better. Yeah, yeah I mean, like the, the, you know, we talked about in, in our book with, that Bob and I did, uh, Anytime you add like one variable that you start to collect, it's an exponential cost. Like you said, you have to collect it, you have to validate it, clean it, prep it. You know, you do any sort of a migration or any you know long-term storage, and it's just an exponential cost for adding one variable. Yeah. You know, one data point to collect. So yeah, and and I, that's where I was going to go. So like for for what you're doing, Stephen, you have and so you cross-validate, use a bunch of different sources. 
you get a lot of data so that you can make sure that the conclusions that you're coming to are as close to accurate as possibly can be. Yeah. That That's a ton of data, though. I mean, how do you go about making that kind of determination? I mean, I'm not going to ask you to kind of go into your business and talk about costs and things like that, but you must have a, gi a ginormous amount of space that you're consuming with this stuff. And how do you make that decision to acquire a new data source and, that, and maintain profitability and things like that? Because it's, you know, unlike the, the breach stuff, which is small data, yet it is painful to collect, it isn't occupying like, you know, you know like terabytes of space. You're, you're occupying petabytes of space, I would, I would gather. And how do, you, how do you decide, hey, let's add 10 more petabytes to what we're doing and figure out some kind of crunching process to that? Yeah, great question. I think this is a challenge and, and this is something that we've evolved on, right? So uh, I don't think we've arrived, but we've gotten a lot better at it. So let me kind of tell you, give you a sense for it, which is, yeah, we're, we're collecting constantly. Uh, and I, I don't think I'm going to give it any secrets here. We're running on top of AWS. And so we, we leverage... Uh, a lot of the elastic storage you know, that we can we can handle, and so we're not having to predetermine based on the disks we've already purchased. You know what we can pile in, we can kind of elastically move out, and then also archive uh, pretty inexpensively. We don't throw away data, right? And so historically, uh, the historical performance for us is very very key when you think about the credit scores, and we're going to get that a little bit later in the in the in the podcast, but uh, that historical performance for us to look at that is really important. So if we throw it away, you know, it's gone. So we've gotten to be very, very. The term I'll use is very scientific persnickety <laughs> about 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 what we keep. Um, and so we have uh, what we call data analytics jobs. Great name. Uh, where we are cross-checking and cross-validating and we'll do it over long periods of time because we know that a small window, days or weeks, is not sufficient for us to make a call. Uh, so what we're having to look over is long periods of time where we can run these analyses, uh, cross-check, cross-validate, and then that's not enough just to look in that. Then we have to get down to some humans because just to get to your point, Jay, validation for us is super important, right? And so uh, if, if we're going to add some new data, uh, not only do you have to say what new uh, you know, vantage point does it give us, what new perspective does it give it, but what, what's the quality level? Uh, and so we'll get with our customers and we'll show them the data so they can actually cross-check it with their internal logs, uh, right? So then we know uh, it's not just full of false positives and the noise level is, is, is reasonable. Uh, and so we run that again and again. We're constantly running that because uh, you know, some folks that we will buy data from uh, you know, are, are selling it, and you know they have all their different reasons. But then I have to understand, well, what's the value to us for our particular application? So there are a variety of different applications. Uh, our application is different and unique than most uh, for this type of data, and so we have to look at that, run the analytics, and say, hey, you know, based on what bump or lift this gives us in any of our analyses and our visibility, you know, then we can understand what additional value it brings to us. Can't, I would say it's not perfect. Uh, it's, it's something that we're constantly working on and evolving on, uh, but we've gotten a lot better as we, I've done many, many of these now. Uh, and so in some cases, it's easy for me to quickly dismiss something because I've already seen it. I know I've got a redundancy on it, uh, and I can see that you know it's somebody else's data that they're trying to give me. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So, so with that much data and with a lot of the – the more advanced analytics that you're doing on this because doing this thing, doing just even basic analytics at scale causes a lot of other yeah. problems and stuff, and I won't go into that too much. 
you know, and you mentioned Python already from some of your initial explorations, but what kinds of tools are you using? I'm guessing you, you just don't like load in the internet into Excel and hit graph, right? <laughs> no, so yeah, and, and, um, and, and I used to be at the front lines of this stuff, and now it's our data science team that's uh, obviously way smarter than me doing a lot of this work. Uh, and so we're very fortunate to build on top of the tool sets that are out there. Uh, so we don't have to reinvent our own. Well, I'm very much a proponent of no one reinventing the wheel uh, if you don't need to. Uh, and so there are some fantastic tools. Uh, we're very biased to Python. Python has some fantastic uh, libraries uh, for doing a lot of the types of things that we do. And, and your viewers are probably familiar with like NumPy, uh, SciPy, Pandas. Uh, and you know something that we really like is the IPython notebook. Uh, if anyone's familiar with that, where our guys can put together a set of analyses, they can share that, they can update it, it can, you know, they can change some parameters, and it shows a visualization, uh, and it's it, it's really great for sharing. And then we'll cross-check when we need to do smoke tests or we'll change something in our model uh, before we actually roll it into production. We'll run it through, and everyone will be able to look at the plots, and we'll get to see what the deviations are, and you know, we can all have some real data-driven discussions around it. And so uh, we use that for a lot of exploratory. Uh, but interesting enough, we're able to use uh, Python in some of our production. And the, the way that we, we use Hadoop principally as our, as our backbone, uh, and because it has the redundancy and the scale out and everything, because we need that for the processing, otherwise it would take too long. But what's been really neat is the team has been able to use Hadoop for that processing, but when they actually need to do the calculations and some of the analytics that we do, we drop into Python, uh, which has been pretty neat. But they use what's called the streaming part of Hadoop, and so they'll stream into Python. They're able to do the code in there, uh, which uses a bunch of different types of matrices. Uh, I know Intel has, uh, we use a, a library from Intel that allows you to do very efficient matrix multiplication and things like that, uh, kind of right on, basically with you know, native instructions. Uh, and so then, then we can pop back out. So it gives us a couple of things. One, it's sort of the, the ease and uh, ability to update in Python, but then we also have that infrastructure that allows us to scale out with Hadoop. Wow, and so and you know since you talked about IPython, Jay and I are both uh, proponents of it as well. We oh, you are okay. That's yeah. Yeah. yeah, we yeah. So while we both live and breathe R, um, I I, I yeah. think uh, Python is also something that we we tend to I, I've I've had to use it a lot more lately um, in, in my new gig actually, and um, but so with the IPython notebooks and in some of the procedures or steps that you were talking about, it sounds like you you and I'm a big proponent of, of reproducible research. So it sounds yeah. like that. When you when you have folks, your data scientists working in this, it isn't just like, hey, I'm just going to do this and it's my own thing. They're doing this so that others can validate their conclusions, validate their hypotheses, validate their models, and that 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 provides a really great way to ensure that someone actually is producing something that's actually good work that you can use in production. Then, Ab absolutely, right. So it's a, you know we talk about transparency. Uh, it's it's easy to make a mistake, mm -hmm. right? And uh, in in any of this stuff, uh, you you get a core. I mean, there's a lots of ways to screw this up. Uh, but the nice thing is that the sharing aspect of it, which is, I mean, I'd love to learn kind of how you guys are using it, but the sharing aspect of it, which is, hey, some one of our guys does something, he puts it up in a Python notebook, I could just bring it up and take a look, and then if I'm like, yeah, I wonder if I can tweak this a little bit, you know, there it is, right? And the code's right there, and then it refreshes. Uh, so that's been pretty fantastic as a collaborative tool, uh, as opposed to, you know, I did, used to do some MATLAB and other sorts of things, and uh, it just wasn't as easy for collaboration. Uh, plus, I hated coding in it, so I much prefer Python. Uh, it, it's just been a really easy tool. Not, it's not perfect. Uh, you know, I think it has some shortcomings, 
but we've been able to use it for very rapid uh, development of prototyping and testing, right? As, as we're tweaking and we're looking at things, we can, okay, we can run it, then we can run our iPython, then we can, you know, show a graph, then we can put another one up right up against it. It just makes it easier for a, you know, exploration. Yeah. And Bob, you mentioned something there that I want you to explain more. You mentioned reproducible research. Can you expand on that, Bob? When you because you mentioned it and then you kept going and you you alluded to what it was, but dive into it. What is it? Yeah, I I I harp on it a little too much every so often, which is why I tend to kind of dismiss it a little bit. So and I think people get a, some somewhat confused about about what it is. So it's not about being able to take models somebody else has written and kind of run them against your own data. It's actually saying, look at. I've got this data. I wanted to explore it. And I wanted to. I have a hypothesis I'm trying to fulfill, and through the exploration, through the analytics, through the models that I've I've put into it, um, here's my conclusions from that. Oh, by the way, here's my data. Here's my analyses. Can you get the exact same uh, output and the exact same conclusions if you've actually run through that? Uh, we had a brief example of it on our site. Um, Security did a great um, online analysis. And you can just go to the blog for folks that are watching and listening to this and find it there. I won't, I won't kind of harp on it too much there. Uh, we just basically took their same data and did a, the same modeling in just in a different language because, well, right. while we do use Python, R is better. And uh, the, the it, it's the truth. I, just, I have to speak truth, sorry. Um, and I think it's just really important that, especially within an organization, um, having a couple of different teams do that. Um, you know, I, I would say keeping each other honest, but that's probably a little bit harsh to say it that way. I think it's just supporting the research work that each group is doing and partnering together to ensure that you're all drawing, coming to the same conclusions. But there are some things on a broader scale where, like, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the VCDB, Jay. The VCDB, the breach database, the, the open one, the community one, uh, that, that it's actually been kind of fun working on on the inside now, too. It's you know that 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 is a a corpus of breaches that if one were to do analysis on that one could basically put your analysis out there and let others run through the same thing to either support what you've done or help you understand what you might have needed to do better and come to different conclusions or whatever. So we're we're beginning to amass a corpus of of different types of stuff, not just breach stuff, but other types of data in in security, where we can start to apply some of these principles that are actually being applied in real science, I'll call it, because we're still kind of in a proto-science state, I, I would argue, in security. Uh, and I think this just helps, will help us move forward a lot faster if we can actually adopt those principles now instead of waiting five years and still arguing about whether we should do that in five years, too. Right. Yeah, good. Thank you for going into that. Um, so, Stephen, you had mentioned that you've got a data science team, a team of data scientists. So when when you're looking for someone to to fill that that role of a data scientist, what are the skills you're looking for? What what are the qualities? Yeah, so I can walk you through uh, our journey. Uh, I still think that hiring a data scientist is is something that people are still trying to you know get their arms around. Uh, what the, what does that mean, data scientists? Uh, what we saw is everyone's resume all of a sudden was updated to say that they were data scientists, <laughs> right? So I don't even know if we have full consensus in the industry around what that is. Uh, but I can tell you the, the three things that we were looking for, we call it the trifecta, which is uh, somebody who understood our domain, uh, which is principally you know, security, uh, network, uh, network security, uh, and any of those sorts of matters. Then we wanted somebody who could perform the scientific research who had the statistical background, who knew the scientific method, had run those, understood the idiosyncrasies of data uh, and experiments. And the third was somebody who could actually code these things up. Uh, and that was you know, someone who had the skills to build prototypes, write some Python code, 
uh, and and actually someone who is diverse uh, in terms of getting in and, and, and implementing things in a system because not, we're not just doing research, we're actually taking it down to practice. And so we went for about four months and had just about no candidates. And, uh, and we kind of just realized we were looking for a unicorn. Uh, and, and there are probably a few unicorns out there, um, but we couldn't find them. And so we really just turned our attention to going after the two areas that we think we probably couldn't replicate and, and teach the third. The two areas that we ended up going after were the people who had you know, a decade plus uh, of scientific research background, who had gone through all the rigors of the statistical modeling, uh, you know, some machine learning in there, uh, and then somebody who could prototype and code. The third area is we wanted it, we thought we would teach them the discipline and, and, the, and the background of security. And we're fully aware that if you don't understand the domain, no matter what statistical methods you use, whatever, it could be completely bogus, right? right? So that was one of those areas where we had to, we knew what we were going into, but we ended up hiring two outstanding guys. One guy was a neuroscientist, that's Stuart. Uh, another guy was a cosmologist, a guy named Tom. Uh, and so neither one of these guys were security experts. Uh, brilliant, brilliant men uh, who have had a lot of experience looking at massive data sets uh, and trying to find the signal and the noise uh, and, and weeding through, cleaning up data, et cetera, who had been able to code up uh, systems. And so you know, we sided with these guys, uh, and they've been outstanding for us. Uh, and we've been teaching them the discipline and the areas as we kind of brought that expertise, and there's been an iteration. It's a back and forth. Uh, and so they've been really uh, you know, smarter than us to, to kind of learn the domain uh, and then bringing all that wealth of expertise and experience with them uh, as you know, we are, we're building models and, and looking at the data. So I, you know, that may be you know, different experiences for other people, but we just found that finding the people with that kind of talent, uh, with that level of experience was hard, yeah. and finding people with the domain expertise on top of that was almost impossible. Uh, and so, you know, we went the route of, hey, we're going to uh, find people with kind of certain set of talent, skills, and then we're going to bring them into our domain. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's been my experience, too, as we've been trying to expand our team that, you know, you talk about the, the trifecta, as you called it, um, and that's essentially um, the same thing that Drew Conway put in his uh, data science Venn diagram, if you're familiar with that. Um, we'll throw a link to that. We talk about it often, Bob and I do, but same same concept, those three areas in a, in a Venn diagram. But what we found is that, um, yeah, I mean, you just can't find all three. You know, you have to you have to give up on at least one of them, you know, and be able to be flexible on some of those, you know, some, some of those aspects. And you can find, you know, like Bob, for example, when, you know, looking at him, looking at hiring Bob, you know, he, uh, I mean, there's... He, he's good in all three, but he's not an expert in all three, right? And same thing with me, same thing I think with probably everybody in that type of field. Um, so if people are looking for trying to fill that type of role, I think that you just have to be aware that you're not going to get 100% in all three of those areas. That You're going to have to give, there's going to be some bend, some give and take, and some, some education and, and uh, evolution that has to occur with people, so... Yeah, and, and I'll I'll show the the book a little more to pump up the summer slump sales that we're having. Uh, but chapter twelve, we actually talk about that a little bit too, where it isn't so much the individual as it is the team. Um, right. And it sounds like you've really got a great team um, at BitSight, Stephen, because you've got the security domain experts. Probably a lot. I mean, I would not hundreds, but you've you've got a good core of those folks. It sounds like, and you're 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 a great one as well too. 
and you've got that combined with the folks that know the stats and know the coding, you bring those together and there's almost nothing you can't do. I say there are challenges. <laughs> so I say there are challenges. I think the other aspect is uh, the other people on the team which don't have the role of data scientists, uh, but they have the role of systems architect. Uh, they're principal engineers, folks with uh, you know very deep math backgrounds. Actually, they may be just trained mathematicians uh, before they're even software engineers. Uh, and so everyone's held to a pretty high standard in terms of academic rigor uh, and peer review. Because uh, you kind of get back to you may be super smart, but it's really easy to make a mistake. Yeah. Right. And so you know we're we're trying to you know implement you know, like we talked about some of these. Hey, let's look at reviews. Let's have people checking this. You know we have QA people uh, who will review something even after someone else has done it, uh, just because you know we, we want to you know be as careful as we can, especially in our domain when we're actually making assertions about companies. Right. That's something that we don't treat take lightly at all. Uh, we think that's a pretty weighty responsibility when we're actually assigning a number. Uh, a rating to to a company from its you know security effectiveness uh, or hygiene is something that we we have to really uh, you know take very seriously, and so it is very much a team uh, at least the way we run it uh, it's very much a team type of approach as we come together and we have very vigorous debates right? I think it's it's not just uh, all of a sudden the you know the sun comes down from heaven and everyone's like, oh here it is and we have very rigorous debates uh, and and they and they get heated. Uh, but I think it's one of those, you know, if you can have those debates, uh, you battle it out, then you back it up with some data. You know, I think that's where we're trying to get to the best results. Well, and you, know, you mentioned trying to boil it down to a number that folks can use to compare and, and help with risk analysis. So the you you know the the, the number scheme that you kind of have now is is somewhat based on I guess the FICO score, and you just you went right to that from the beginning, right? There was no extended period of time where you tried different things that you just knew you wanted that from the beginning. Actually, no, no. So it's an evolution. Uh, it uh, we we started with kind of letter grades. We started with high, medium, low. Um, and one of those, when we, when we made a study of the space, uh, we looked for what have been successful risk management metrics, right? Uh, what has been successful in unleashing new applications? And when we looked across the space, you look at debt ratings. So you have like what you see with the Moody's or an S&P. Uh, those have been very successful. And then when we thought about one that it's quantitative in terms of data collected about somebody or something is, is the credit scores, right? So uh, the FICO rating, like it or love it, has embedded itself all over the place, right? And uh, it's because it's become a useful metric. Doesn't mean that it's perfect. Uh, you know, you can read all about the flaws and you know, the data problems that they have, uh, but it's been proven useful, right? And, and organizations now can take that metric and layer on uh, their own analyses. They can build their own programs for how they want to manage based on that. Uh, but it has become a very successful metric for unleashing credit issuance uh, in terms of doing background checks on individuals. It's become an indicator for how people manage their personal finances. Uh, you know, you could say, well, maybe what kind of bearing does it have on their job? Well, it depends on the job, right? Uh, and so what we're really trying to do is pattern what we did after that because it's because such, such a successful metric and it's taken something which is very complex, which is somebody's uh, spending patterns, their borrowing patterns, their lifestyle, and taking it down to a single number. Right? Anytime you're doing something like that, you're gonna you're gonna miss some things, right? It, some things are going to be occluded, other things you may not account for fully, uh, but it becomes something that people can manage to. And so what we heard again and again 
is that people in the position of making risk decisions at the executive level couldn't consume analyses of documents this thick, right? And, and I learned this lesson working in the DOD for a while. Uh, we would do vulnerability assessments, and then we would show the general the vulnerability assessments this thick, and he's like, hey, can I still ship bombs and bullets? And we have to say, yeah. And he's like, okay, I'm good, <laughs> right? And so we didn't do a good job of communicating the risks, right? Um, and so one of the challenges uh, that we had is, well, how do we communicate that, uh, which is a very complex process, down to something that somebody can consume and take action on? And so when we studied that out, we really evolved to a number uh, that could also give some degree of granularity. Because what we didn't want to say is, these guys are all good, these guys are all medium, these guys are all poor. Well, there's a distribution in any one of those, right? And it's like, well, how good am I with inside the good range? And how poor am I with inside the poor range? And so uh, a way of doing that is putting it on a numerical scale. Uh, what we avoided doing was the 0 to 100 because it, it started to get all the, the letter grade. Uh, you know, people started assuming those things and the letter grades and whatnot. So we really wanted to kind of shift the scale. Uh, and then re kind of retrain people uh, to use it for our domain. But you know, we also didn't want to have to completely retrain from scratch. So when in our ratings you know, uh, scale, if we say an organization is an 800, uh, even kind of your lay person who's never dealt in security before is like 800, that's probably pretty good, right? Because right? if they think of from the, the credit scores. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the span of people doing risk management, you have the ultra-security weenies, you know, and, and there are those, and then you have people who are trying to get their job done in terms of procurement, they're trying to look at budgets, right? they're trying to look at performance improvements inside, and at the executive level, right? they're trying to manage risks on a large scale. They're not just thinking about the security risk, they're thinking about financial risk, geopolitical risk, and so they're having to have different layers of abstraction. And so for us, it was trying to find what's the right level of abstraction that still can communicate you know, the most amount of information. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, when you when you were to de let's say you're delivering some kind of a report or something, I mean, obviously the the number is extremely helpful, and that's sort of the you know quick here's the overall executive summary. But then you have to also communicate more around it, right? So what are yes. the what are the common practices that you'll use to sort of visualize or communicate the data, uh, the, your results more beyond just the number? Yeah, great question. For us, graphs and plots, right? Uh, and we try to make that as visual as possible. So we use a combination of histograms. We look at time layouts. We have plot layouts uh, where we're trying to, to communicate uh, you know, time versus magnitude. Uh, we're also doing relative. I mean, for us, uh, you know, I could throw out a number, but it doesn't mean a whole lot until you kind of know relative what that means, right? And so there's a relative scale. So we do a lot in terms of comparison layouts. Here's one company versus an industry. Here's one company versus its peers. Uh, and so for us, communicating this information graphically is, is really important to us. Right? And so I'd say plots, uh, but we still have tables as well, right? As people want to get down to you know, table breakdowns uh, of you know, some of the subcategories that are driving the ratings, uh, you know, we'll get down even to your table layouts. And that you, you said something I think is incredibly important, that sort of relative aspect. Because, I mean, you can say 800 and people may think, boy, that seems good, you know, for a credit score kind of thing. But, um, you know, you need to be able to see that in the, in the context of everything else, you know. So if 800 is, you know, compared to everybody else, that might be really, really poor or it might be, you know, you need that, like, 
you know, you mentioned one company versus the industry as a as a whole. I yeah. think it's really interesting that you sort of arrive there to do that comparative, you know, graph and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, and just to add to that, you know, it's and you know, we we keep saying single number, but the reality is it's a single number over time. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, I, I I don't want to talk too yeah. much about my my personal experience with with with, with what you guys produce, but. I, I did find that over time view, both from the, the, the FICO-like score as well as some of the other information you do provide. So I, I, I'll, I'll dance around what some of the information is. Um, so if you want to fill in gaps, you can. I just want to fill in sure. gaps. Um, I, I found that tremendously useful for, in a whole host of things. So not necessarily the score up by itself, but being able to consume a lot of the other things because of your vantage point. The data you have, being on the you know being you know monitoring basically parts of the internet to get some of the information, having that bird's eye or external or independent view of what's going on, really can help an organization. Like there's basically there's just a number of things that you provide in that report, uh, and that's just one part of the report that that I'm talking about. That really does that. I think that, but basically just going back that over time view for all those things. Is, I think is one of the most critical aspects of what you produce in the report. Yeah, and I appreciate you bringing that up. So I, I'm a huge advocate for looking at performance over time uh, because you're going to see wild fluctuations. Actually, one of the reasons we started BitSide is people would say, hey, I'm going to do an audit, and I have no idea you know, what they did before I showed up, and I have no idea what they do after I leave, right? And so like, okay, we, we, need, to, we need to get a better temporal view on that. And so, you know, temporal plots for us are, are really, really important. Uh, and I think humans get it understand. We've been looking at timelines, you know, since we're in elementary school. Uh, and so, I think looking at sort of a, a temporal plot uh, really helps people to, you know, understand, you know, what may be, you know, complex data. And yeah, so and we we didn't throw this in some of the the, the pre work questions we throw at you. So feel feel free to just not answer the question at all. Sure. But um, I'll give you the no, no comment. Yeah, no, the, and that's it, it's totally cool to do that because we didn't actually throw it out there. But um, I I think I've asked you this before, you know, and you you are collecting public data. It is you know this is bits and bytes traversing the internet. Anyone that's on the internet in the right spot can grab most of the stuff here or do whatever else they need to do to get it. But it, but at some point. Um, you know, enough of that information together is kind of interesting information about an organization. Like, a, as an example, um, you know, Joe's hardware store down the street, if you were doing it for them, if it, like, let's say a big hardware store down the street, uh, you know, if you just slapped one of your kind of very detailed reports on the internet, that that's kind of a bit of sensitive information when you compile that stuff together. So do you, do you have issues doing the the type of analysis that you do, because when when you throw a security layer on top of the analytics layer, the analytics layer inherently becomes a lot less, you know, manageable, a lot less flexible, a lot less, a lot less performant of how you want to do things. So, you know, do you find that 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 balance of security as well as the analytics is is a hard thing to do, or have you guys come up with some pretty good ways of doing that? Uh, so I'll kind of take in a, in a couple questions. So uh, getting it to the right presentation is a challenge, and I think we're still evolving on that. Okay. I think the other part is uh, getting people comfortable with the transparency. Okay. Uh, you talked about you know putting something out there. Uh, we don't just publish these things uh, out there on a website, right? So that's the other part, which is we're really trying to find the right balance of responsible disclosure. And you know I think input from the community here, you know either after the podcast, would love to to hear from that. What I'd say is uh, there are times when we're in discussions where people are uncomfortable. Uh, and they're uncomfortable that we would know certain things or they're uncomfortable that somebody else might find out about certain things uh, that they're not normally used to sharing. 
and uh, and the way I approach that, and I and I can appreciate that, the way that I believe that the only way we're going to get better, and I've been at this for not maybe as long as you guys, but pretty long time, we have not made huge leaps in improvements. I think there have been incremental improvements, um, but I think that for us to make a huge leap, we really have to increase transparency and and act in a different way than we normally have been. Right? I believe looking at data and driving things that way, being very scientific about it, but I think we have to share. And so a little bit of anecdote here to kind of cycle back onto my point. I was at a presentation at RSA. It had some you know, kind of luminaries in the space. Alex Hutton was on there. Adam Shostak was on there. A guy named Jake Alcott from Good Harbor. And they talked about a National Transportation Safety Board equivalent in cybersecurity, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, which is a National Transportation Safety Board investigates, you know, aircraft accidents, right? They go in and see the black box, and then they publish the, what, what went wrong, and then people can embrace that to improve, right? Is that potentially embarrassing to the pilot? You bet. Could that embarrass the airline? Uh-huh, right? But over time, when you look at the number of airplane accidents, you know, aviation accidents we have, it's pretty small. I know we've had a couple in the news lately, uh, but when you think of all the flights going on out there, we have relatively few accidents in the aviation industry. Why I believe is because we introduced transparency, we learned from it, right, and then we're going to improve it. That's why I think it's brilliant about what's going on, at, like with the Verizon uh, data breach investigations report. Is like hopefully people can learn. And so I think one of the challenges is we have to kind of get over some of the stigma that comes from you know a, a security issue. We all run the same software. We're all going to have you know, security issues. We're all humans. We all make mistakes. And the hope is, for me, the faster we can learn uh, from you know, the different mistakes as an industry, as a group, uh, you know, as a, a humankind, right, the better we're going to improve on this. And so are there times when people are uncomfortable that we've found certain information on them? There's no doubt. What I appreciate, though, is the sincere uh, practitioner, the CISO, who realizes, yep, I know I have gaps. I know I have resource constraints. Uh, I'm, I want to use this to drive better conversations. I want to be able to communicate up to my management or communicate up to my board so they can understand our initiatives. I want to understand where we fit in an industry to see kind of our investments helping us improve. Uh, now, from a bit site, we can't tell you all of that, but we can give you a little bit of insight into some of those things. And so well, here we're trading off what has typically been reserved for, you know, uh, uh, what we call secret squirrel email channels uh, and discussions, you know, at, at certain conferences, and now we're opening it up a little bit. And so that's changing the dialogue. In some ways, it's making some folks uncomfortable. I just believe very firmly that we have to introduce greater transparency so we can leap ahead uh, because these incremental improvements aren't getting us to where we really need to be. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That was a, a beautiful way to say that, too. You just came out with a uh, insights industry report. Could you could you kind of walk through what that is? Because it's pretty interesting. I mean, like you're putting some of the stuff out there for people to see. Yeah. So what we do is, since we're rating companies, uh, we can obviously build averages, indexes. We can look at the industries. You know, we start with the company and then go out, right? And so what we've tried to do is look at other areas in finance that have been helpful for a variety of different applications. And so when we look at the S&P 500, uh, it's become a really good indicator for the health of the U.S. stock market, right, and, and in turn, the U.S. economy. And so we tried to get a sense for, well, what if we start doing 
some S&P 500-like assessments from a cybersecurity effectiveness perspective. Uh, so we've done uh, several of these now, and the most recent one, we actually took uh, the companies in the S&P 500, we built ratings on them, excuse me, and then we broke it out by industry. And we wanted to say, well, how are those industries, as you average them across the companies in each one of those, looking, uh, and how does that break out? And I can tell you when we started, my expectation, this was maybe some confirmation uh, bias issue, but my expectation was that the utility sector was going to be pretty poor performing. Just because of all the anecdotes I've heard about issues on SCADA systems and uh, you know that they're a little bit behind the time. Uh, what we found though, which this was where that data, this is where I think is fantastic and hopefully your viewers appreciate this, the data pointed us elsewhere. Uh, and the data actually pointed us to healthcare, which I was not expecting and maybe I should have. Uh, and now since we saw that, I've been drilling down a lot more uh, and learned a whole bunch of, of, of new things about healthcare that I never would have even thought about had we not run this analysis. And so when we looked at this, we looked at the healthcare companies and pharma and, and combined them inside of the S&P 500. I, I won't go into the names, but just go look at the S&P 500 and then find those companies and you'll see the ones we're talking about, uh, that they were poor performing than retail. And when I say that, you all know what's been happening in retail over the last six to nine months. It's been about a breach a month. Nice. And so it was very sobering to think, wow, when we're looking down here into healthcare, could we have you know, something else at the same level that we've been seeing in retail? Answer is, I don't know, but I also say stay tuned because what I learned was in these organizations, they have the electronic medical record. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know this before, but the electronic medical record has value on the black market. It's, and, and what I was told is it was about 20 bucks, and then I talked with another reporter. He said it was closer to 50 bucks a record, and mm -hmm. the question was why? Like, Whoa, what's the currency of that? It turns out that that can be used to forge identity to actually go and get health care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can actually go and get a doctor visit and get drugs, get prescriptions, which I thought was fascinating. He's like, yeah, that, that was you – know, and uh, so that has real currency. And mm -hmm. so the next follow-on was, well, what are the downstream impacts of that? And so as we talk with some more experts, it was one of those, well, if somebody is forging that, that's getting onto your medical record. And then if you show up at the hospital, let's say you show up in an emergency condition and they're like, hey, oh, we see that Bob's been taking this and this and we've diagnosed him with that, so let's treat him this way. That could be potentially life and death situation, right? right? Which I thought, you know, was, you know, normally cyber, okay, it's, it's maybe some intellectual property theft, maybe some downtime of critical systems, you know, maybe some nuisance of clearing out your bank account, uh, but rarely would we ever saw that being health outcomes. Right. And so the question, you know, that I had is, you know, is this going to start impacting uh, the doctor-patient uh, communication privilege, right? Is they going to say, hey, I don't want to disclose this because this could be out on the internet, uh, right? It's one of these really interesting things. And then as we start dig, digging in. Uh, to people who are on the ground. We talk mm -hmm. with some folks at Sigital uh, who's, who've done audits down there on the ground inside of these organizations and what they said is uh, many of these organizations are failing to do even the basics. Yeah. They're failing to encrypt, they're failing to authenticate uh, and then these systems are older so they have they tend to have even more legacy mm -hmm. and these legacy systems are running older versions that just haven't been updated and this one, this one kind of blew me away. Uh, there was a guy at a hospital who's buying a system that is for sale now 
that is running XP. Right? So he's going he's gonna to buy that, or maybe he's going to buy that, then he's going to bring an XP, which has already been end of life, into his you know, hospital yeah. that's probably going to be there for a decade going forward. Yep. Right? And yeah. so the other, the other piece that we found, and this was fascinating, I know we're going to kind of wrap up, is that we tried to understand, well, what might be causal here? And what we also saw is that the, there was a study by Ponymon where the IT security staff inside these organizations were the lowest paid. All right, so when they actually did uh, an assessment, they looked at uh, compensation plans, and that healthcare uh, pharma group was the lowest in terms of you know the industry in terms of paying their people, mm. and so it was one of those. Maybe they're getting what they paid for, right? In in terms of you know the talent or training, maybe they're just understaffing it. But what's clear when we compare that with financial services, there's a big gap. Mm. And in financial services, the nice thing is we see in the data they're top performing. You would expect them to be. Uh, but they invest, right? They're training their people, uh, and when we look at we look at patterns for how people are doing this right, we point up to financial services. And so when we think about scientifically, how do we get to best practices? How do we know what's working? Well, we're trying to measure it, and clearly things are working in financial services uh, as a group. There's a spread, but as a group, uh, you know, they're they're doing really well. And then when we saw what's happening in healthcare, we saw that big gap. And as an industry, you know, they're Definitely below uh, their peers uh, that are working in financial services. Yep, and you know, and even in our, the data that we work with, we see pretty much exactly what you're describing, right? So, like in the financial industry, one of the things that we found is even the small financial industries are doing better than, say, you know, other industry large large organizations. Yeah. And so, and I think you know that they they obviously have been under attack for an extremely long time, and they're you know they they feel that and it's very the attacker is very financially driven and of course they deal in money yes um, and then in healthcare i think you know talking about the emr uh, one of the one of the challenges is that that type of an attack is a it's never going to be i don't think it'll, that'll be a huge attack because what we see more in healthcare is like you said going after identity but mainly for like tax fraud Right, because you can get a bulk of identities and do a bulk of fake yeah. tax, you know, returns and stuff. And um, so I think that's much more prevalent. And I mean, that's what we see in our breach data too. Is we see the, uh, and a lot of it is the employees, right? The, um, you know, they they bring in the the low paid worker, and all of a sudden they have access to people's medical information, including, you know, usually every bit of financial information yeah. that they would need to then go yeah. do identity theft, right? Um, and so that's a lot of what we're seeing as well. But we we see the same thing. A lot of the you know if we isolate the the actions that the attacker is taking, and we look at what we see in healthcare versus the financial industry, just night and day. Like you said, you know it's a lot of really basic things going on in, in healthcare and a lot of the other industries too. But you get to the financial industry, and now the the attacks are a little bit more advanced. You know the techniques are are not the run of the mill. There's there's some more interesting things I guess to look at. So it's interesting that we're seeing the same type of stuff. Yeah, and so I I, I love that because it's two different perspectives, right? Yeah. You're seeing it from on the ground in there. We're seeing it from from out and beyond. I'd say the other thing that's a challenge here is well, how do we change that? And I think one of the challenges that the healthcare sector faces is they're not as agile as some of these other industries, right? They have uh, legacy systems that they've invested in that they're not just going to, you know, 
upgrade. Right, right. right? And so what I see, I mean, I, mean I, I hope I'm wrong, but what I see is this probably will persist for a little while. You know, yeah. We're trying to, to get some of the word out, and I think we've seen some fines that came down from Health and Human Services just recently. So I think there will be a little bit of stick involved in, in holding out that carrot. But it's one of these, I don't know if they'll be able to turn that quickly just because of that infrastructure that they have uh, that has a lot of vulnerabilities. Yeah, and I think I think that they have a lot of challenges that others don't. I mean, you know, when you talk about medical devices and and medical things, there's a whole lot of approvals that those have to go yeah. through, right? So I mean, like, and like that XP system, you know, that's probably been uh, reviewed by you know yeah. FDA or whoever, and has a stamp on it that says this is good to go. And all of a sudden, you know, and that takes years. You know, it's like a FIPS 140 certification for crypto. Yes, and it's yeah. just a complex, a very complicated environment with so many other interdependencies going on there. Like you said, the patient system, like they just, they're not going to update that annually, right? They're not going to go in and replace it. I mean, there's all the training that goes on and all the investment and stuff. So yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think that that'll continue and it'll slowly evolve. And I think that there's going to be a lot of really hard lessons learned uh, in healthcare, but I think other industries as well as as we start to see more and more of these breaches broadening out, you know, so, yeah. So, but back to your report, how how do you how do you think that that has been received by the industry, security industry, that kind of a thing, or, or others outside of the industry? So the the response has been fairly positive. Uh, I'd say it's uh, we we've learned that looking at different industries gets people's attention because they can associate themselves to an industry, uh, they can do some comparisons, which is, you know, it's a helpful metric. I don't know if it gets you down quite to the level that, that you know, they want to, but I would say that looking at a spread, looking at relative performance of industries is something that, you know, people really grasped onto. I would say because healthcare is such a personal thing, I, I would say, and obviously we've had a big healthcare debate in our country, uh, I think that the fact that it's been below retail in terms of what we can measure uh, has has sparked a lot of interest uh, because I don't think that's something that's been out in front very often, right? And I think you've seen a lot in retail. People obviously are worried about the banks. Uh, and this was new to me. I could tell you that uh, you know, I learned a lot after we uh, have published this. People came in, have come to us and keep coming to us with, you know, some nods like, yeah, uh, you know, we've known about this and, you know, the, the word isn't quite out there. So I'm, I'm more of an optimist. Uh, by nature, I think that by getting some of this information out there, by engaging in these conversations, uh, you know, people will be more aware and then they'll start to ask questions, right? So boards will now start to ask, well, how are we doing? I see that, you know, the, the industry looks pretty poor. What kind of investments are we making? How are we thinking about our process? How are we paying our staff? And just starting with those conversations, you know, I hope it doesn't just have to be, you know, breaches every month before people take action. Unfortunately, sometimes that happens, but I'm hoping that we can we can change the dialogue and change the kind of conversations that people are having, you know, so we can improve this, you know, before we hit, you know, major impact to, to individuals. Hopefully, not you know negative health outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I I know we wanted to wrap up, but I did have one final I think question I'd like to toss Stephen's ways. Um, so. What advice might you give to organizations? Sorry, so not everyone listening to this is a bit site. A lot of them are just regular organizations. 
most of them haven't really adopted, I would argue, a lot of data-driven practices because they're just too busy maintaining their control-driven infrastructure because of whatever can you whatever whatever regular regulatory scheme that they kind of fall under. Yeah, what kinds of advice, what kinds of steps, any guidance you might want to give to orgs for how to basically bring the data-driven practices that you've got or and other and folks that you know that might have into their organization so they can start to go down this path and kind of re, maybe reinvigorate their, their whole security practice? Yeah, so I'd say uh, we see this again and again. It really has to start with high-level executive sponsorship. Uh, right, and if you can't get high-level executives to buy in, you're kind of doomed from the beginning. You'll bring, you'll maybe get some skunk works going here and there, uh, but what we see is the best results come for people who get resources, and, I, and that's probably not a shocking result, uh, but it's one of those it, it, you have to be able to dedicate time and resources to doing this, just like any other part of your business. And so we we like to think that. When organizations at a high level uh, have an executive sponsor who understands the importance, uh, then they are champions for different initiatives. And I mean, these can be all over the place. So it's one of these, you, know, you could start in a lot of different other areas. But I'd say if you've got a, a champion who can sponsor a variety of different initiatives, you've got a good place to start. I'd say after that is then focus, right? So focus is do a risk assessment and figure out where your biggest risks are. Because you're going to get IT guys or you're going to get security guys who are going to have their own pet project and they're either going to want to you know, encrypt this or you know, implement this there. And it's one of, it may have almost no impact on risks of the business. And so I'd say focus on the areas that are of risk to your business from an information security standpoint. And only you are really going to know you know what that is to your business. So I, I can't really tell you. There are lots of great companies that can go in and help you do that. Uh, and then I think the third one is just be vigilant in doing monitoring of what you do, right? And so uh, there are you know, lots of things that can go on, but what we see in terms of high-performing organizations is that they're very vigilant in watching. And nobody's going to be perfect. You know, bad guys are going to get through. That's just the nature of what it is. I think we all as an industry have to recognize that instead of just trying to stop everything. We also have to realize that we have to recover quickly. And so uh, folks that can put in processes for watching and monitoring uh, are more likely to catch things earlier on before they can be more detrimental. So I'd say find a high-level executive sponsorship, somebody who can champion different initiatives, do real risk assessments, and focus on that for your business. you got to prioritize. you got to be ruthless about the prioritization because you can't do everything. Even the, even the biggest organizations can't do everything. And then figure out good ways to monitor uh, your, your systems, your logs, your processes, and track that, right? And that could start small, uh, but you know you got to start somewhere. And people that do that, uh, you know, tend to get better results, right? Obviously, there's a span, uh, but I think in doing those simple things, we see that that's what they do in financial services. And so I'm not trying to to reinvent anything new here. Those guys are getting pretty good results uh, by doing those things. You know, it can get very complex at different layers, uh, but you can also make it very simple as well. And they're going back to the executive sponsorship. You know, that's like um, whenever someone says that, like in my mind, I'm thinking like it's like saying, well, you know, in order to to enjoy your day, you have to breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you need that, right? Yes. Um, But but one of the things, you know, part of the challenge is getting that sponsorship. And you you started to talk about something that I think is really critical about uh, moving to a data driven practice like this, and that is. 
having that moment when you realize that you've been wrong about something, right? And that I think that is like the one of the key values to going to this data-driven thing. Where like any any security professional, every security professional has opinions, right? Yeah. And every security professional is going to be wrong on some proportion of those opinions. And yeah. we all know security people. We are security people. Yeah. We have a lot of opinions, right? And some of those are just dead wrong. We just don't know which ones, right? And so I think having moments where we can say, hey, we started collecting this data and we realized that we've been wrong for years, yes. right? All of a sudden, you know, like from my experience, that's when people start to go, wait, we can actually learn, we can improve, we yes. can change things. This is fantastic. Let's let's do more of that, you know? So I think that's one of the one of the key things to to try and figure out is challenge some of the assumptions and, and communicate and, and share that, you know, up and down the chain so to, to help get that sponsorship. Yeah, I'd say, uh, and this, I'll put a little bit of plug in. So we, what we initially had started out is focusing on security ratings to manage third-party risks. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what we realized is that organizations really wanted to benchmark themselves. And, and that, is, that was a key thing that, you know, we've learned uh, I think people still want third-party risk assessment, but uh, it drives these conversations. Well, here's here's where we are. Uh, you know, here's where we sit against our industry. Here's our trend, and then mm -hmm. let's talk about it, right? And so that's where we start to see at the executive level those conversations changing, even more fantastically at the board level, uh, where board members are now starting to get involved in asking these kind of questions, uh, and they're wanting to be able to track with metrics. And so uh, I think. Having data to drive these conversations and all the challenges that come with it, right? I think that's you know we all have to recognize that you know data can be messy. Uh, you could have some errors here and there, uh, but you know this is where you're going to focus at long-term trends uh, or some robust measurements uh, that you can have conversations around. I think yeah, we can really change things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think we could probably wrap up here, Bob. Did you have any closing thoughts? Um. I could just ramble on about how great the service that these folks provide, um, not just Stephen, but all the folks that he has working with them and under them. Uh, and I think it's just, I think if you just investigate what they do, the inspiration alone to try to bring data-driven security into your organization um, is worth just that investigation. So um, just more more power to you as, as you poke around what they do, try to take some of the practices and bring it in, into your own house. Yeah. And Stephen, how, how can people reach out to you and, and to BitSight? Well, sure. So you got my Twitter handle right there on the uh, the overlay, <laughs> which I thank Bob for. Uh, and, and you can reach out. You go to the website. It's uh, bitsitetech.com. Uh, you know, we're we're on you know, LinkedIn and the social media, or you could just uh, you know email in on any of those. You know, we like to engage, and we do a lot of writing uh, and from, in terms of blogging. So you know, uh, we love the feedback, uh, and so you know, I spend a lot of my time talking with great guys like Bob and Jay. Uh, because you're never fully there, right? And so, you know, we love the feedback uh, from the community uh, and other folks. We've been engaging with uh, research organizations, universities, as we continue to conduct experiments. So, uh, you know, I'd love to engage on that level as well. If you have data or some experiments that, you know, you would like to test, you know, I'd, lo I'd love to talk with you. Yeah, and Stephen, if you want to just throw any links our way, I'll put them up on the podcast notes so people can go right to them without having to do any kind of Googling or anything, too. Sure. Love to. 
Great. Well, we can't thank you enough for your time. I think this has been just a fantastic discussion. Um, I think we covered most of it, all the topics that we could cover, so I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time, Stephen. Oh, thanks. It's been a pleasure. I could keep going on with you guys for days. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll give some people a break on, on the length of the podcast, but no, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Great. All right. Thank you. All right. See you guys. Thanks, guys.